You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, welcome everyone. Um, You may all have remembered me from a previous talk, but there's a couple new people here who I haven't seen at all. So thank you for being here. As you said, my name is Ashley Lynn Hanks. I'm also the host of the Unlearning Podcast, which is a podcast on gentle deconstruction. I'm the kind of person that doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I'm all about like, how do we sanitize the bathwater? How do we apply filters? How do we make sure it's clean and healthy? Um, And I'm also a big uh, believer in Black feminist thought. And so that is what fills a lot of my thinking and a lot of my reconstruction of my Christian faith. A couple of weeks ago, I asked Aaron if I could do a talk on healthy Christian sexual ethics. Um, a lot of times in progressive Christian cultures or just communities, we're all very vocal about how much we do not like the evangelical purity culture. I mean, there's like whole hashtags about how much we hate Joshua Harris and everything tied to that. Um, and so what we don't really have a framework to kind of have an alternative. We don't really know or haven't thought through an alternative. And so when I was in seminary at Claremont, which is an incredible seminary, if you're even thinking about going into ministry, you should go to Claremont, not Fuller, Claremont, uh, because it it is unapologetically progressive. They're not there to tell you what to think or how or make you believe what they believe, but they want you to come to a conclusion in your faith that is reasonable and rooted in logic. And also Max is the admin director, like he's the uh, admissions director there. So it's a really good seminary. Oh yeah, he used to be at Fuller. So you moved up, yeah. Anyway, I love Fuller. And so today I want to introduce to you a healthy alternative to the evangelical purity culture. Now, instead of looking at sex in terms of do's and don'ts, I wanna look at sex in terms of ethics. I'm gonna help you build an ethical framework. This framework I'll provide is not from the mind of Ashley Lynn Hanks. It is primarily from the work of Margaret Farley and her book, Just Love. It's really dense. If you wanna get it, go ahead and get it. Uh, But it's very academically dense. But this is from her work and from Bell Hooks's work, All About Love, which is easy to read and still on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, If you do nothing else after church, go to the store and get anything written by Bell Hooks. She's amazing. And so my talk today, like every talk I give, is an offering. It's something to think about. It's not a definitive answer to all of our sexual problems. My talk is something to think about and something to consider. And so today is going to be intellectually dense. And so if you need any kind of clarification, please let me know at the end. I would love to clarify that. All right. In her book, All About Love by Bell Hooks, she says, there can be no love without justice. Let that sink in. There can be no love without justice. Margaret Farley agrees and explains that the definition of justice is to render to each one what is due. So if I steal 
Aaron's cardigan, because Aaron's a cardigan wearer. He's not. But if I steal his cardigan, justice is to give it back, right? And if I pay the $20 to go to Planet Fitness and to sit in all of the extra the massage chairs, justice is allowing me to sit in all the massage chairs. Like you pay for what you get to render to each one what is due. But if you look about, think about that in terms of relationships, Margaret Farley says that people ought to be affirmed. Justice in relationships is this. People ought to be affirmed according to their concrete reality, according to their needs, capacities, relational claims, vulnerabilities, and possibilities. So what does she mean by concrete reality? Think of it this way. It's very easy for people to objectify women, to see women as objects for their sexual pleasure. Now, if we're being honest, we know women do this too. And we know LGBT people do this too, okay? But the point is, is that when we objectify a person, we are rejecting their humanity. We're rejecting their concrete reality. Farley also explains that our concrete reality includes, and I quote, not only their present actuality, but their positive potentiality for development, for human and individual flourishing, as well as their vulnerability for diminishment. In other words, any kind of relationship rooted in justice will respect and encourage someone's flourishing. I truly believe that my relationship with my wife, Jen, should make her life better. It should increase her self-confidence, her ability to pursue her dreams and ambitions. Any relationship I have with someone should make their life better. And so that's the idea. And so when you consider someone's concrete reality, it's not just their current needs, it's those that are gonna happen in the future, the aspirations and vulnerabilities in the future. Farley believes that there are two aspects of someone's personhood that we are obligated to always respect, whether or not you're in a sexual relationship with them. Those two aspects are a person's autonomy and their relationality. We use the word autonomy whenever we describe a person's right to decide who they are and what they want out of life. And we use the word relationality when we describe how a person relates to someone else. When we intentionally respect someone's autonomy, we are understanding the person as whole and complete in and of themselves. Or they are not an object to be used for our pleasure. Our love does not complete them. They are whole in and of themselves. And so to violate someone's autonomy is to deny that and to criticize it and ignore it. And to end, I quote, absorb that person into your own agenda rather than respecting the one that is their own. A lot of times conflict over autonomy happens in expectations. One partner expects something else from the other partner. Sometimes it's sexual intimacy or the frequency of sexual intimacy. Respecting a person's autonomy means that we are refusing to see the other person as a means to an end. They are an end in and of themselves. Your partner, not even in marriage, 
is an object for your sexual pleasure. You are in relationship with a whole, complete, independent human being whose needs, relational claims, the claims they make and how they relate to you, vulnerabilities and possibilities, they're as important as yours are. The evangelical church teaches that you are not your own, that you are bought with a price. We often apply Paul's words to, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6 by telling teenagers that they have no right to have sexual thoughts. We tell young adults that they cannot choose to love who they want to love, that your body does not belong to you. We hear that directly from the pulpit and indirectly when we have relationships with evangelical people, that we were bought with a price and that price is Christ on the cross. Now I fully understand the basic tenets of Christian doctrine, but the cross of Christ does not mean that sex is bad. The propitiation of Christ, the cross of Christ, does not imply the objectification of human beings. We are not objects and we cannot be bought with a price. The cross of Christ is simply an example of divine love. Despite experiencing humanity's most vile and oppressive behavior, Christ is still there. He doesn't run away. And it's a demonstration of divine love that affirms human dignity, not human depravity. Christ came that we may have life and have it abundantly, not so that we could beat our bodies into submission of the evangelical church. The evangelical church teaches youth and children or youth and young adults to be ashamed of their sexual desires until they get married. Once they get married, the objectification continues. We preach Paul, not Christ. We preach Paul when we preach that married couples have conjugal rights to sexual relations with their partner. We preach Paul when we teach that wives have to have sex with their husbands, even when they aren't in the mood or don't want it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul wrote, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul's understanding of sex goes directly against healthy understandings of autonomy and relationality. Now, please understand that our partner, that your partner is not obligated to force themselves to have sex. Even if you've been married for decades, your partner is an autonomous and independent being with freedom of choice, with needs and capabilities and their own desires. To truly love someone in an ethical way is to respect those desires. We must respect someone's right to choose even if they don't choose us. These are good things. These are healthy principles, even in marriage. It's important to understand that the author of 1 Corinthians is Paul, not Jesus. Jesus did not tell people they were objects. Jesus never said you were bought with a price, that your spouse has owned your body and your sexual ability. Jesus said nothing about sex except for condemning adultery. Let me repeat that. Jesus said nothing about sex except for condemning adultery. 
when it comes to sex in the Gospels, everyone points to the verse in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. As evangelicals, we have taken this verse to mean that any kind of attraction to anyone is sinful. But given the fact that you cannot commit adultery unless you or the other person is married, the text implies that whoever is doing the lusting is married. It is true that when we allow our eyes and our attention to dwell on people who aren't our spouse or who do not want our attention, <laughs> we are using that person as an object for our own sexual pleasure. And this is a kind of objectification. You are lusting after that person as a means to an end and not looking at them as an end in and of themselves. Now, there is nothing wrong with being single and ready to mingle. Finding another person attractive is not a sin. Attractiveness is not a sin. There is nothing wrong with being a married person and dressing attractive. Part of being attractive and giving special attention to your appearance is part of nurturing self-love. It's a good thing. It's not something that we should be ashamed of. We should all aspire to look the best we can or look as best as we want to. So now that I'm done with my introduction, let me get into the, we're gonna talk about three of the seven norms of Margaret Farley's ethical framework. In her book, Farley explains that these are, there are seven norms, and I'm only gonna go over three today, but of the seven norms, these are, these are not merely ideas, but bottom of the line requirements. Farley also believes that justice can be experienced on a spectrum. She states that while minimum justice is always required, maximum justice can go beyond this to what is fitting for the person in the situation. This minimum maximum justice will make more sense as we go along. But for now, just remember that there are seven norms and each of these is the bare minimum. All right, the first norm of healthy, just Christian sexual ethics is this do no unjust harm. Why unjust? Farley explains that sometimes harm is necessary to bring about greater good. Truth-telling is a kind of necessary harm and a very normal part of a healthy relationship. Unjust harm happens when we treat someone as a means to an end. Unjust harm can be done both physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Farley explains that unjust harm can also take the form of failure to support, to assist, to care for and honor our lovers. She also includes this in a list of all forms of violence, sexual harassment, and pedophilia. Obviously, this is a very bottom-of-the-line behavior in relationships, but it's important to consider. Are you doing no unjust harm to yourself, in your relationship? As we seek to be people transformed by grace, transformed by love, evolving continually and imperfectly into the image of Christ, we need to go much further than simply doing no unjust harm. We need to pursue the flourishing of our partner and ourselves. 
The second norm of just sex or is free consent. Again, this is a minimum bottom of the line requirement. Farley explains that free consent, and I quote, safeguards the autonomy of persons as transcendent and free. She also explains that the seduction and the manipulation of people who have the limited capacity for choice because of immaturity, special dependency, or loss of power is unethical. The requirement of free consent also opposes sexual harassment, pedophilia, and other instances of disrespect for a person's capacity for and <clears throat> right to freedom of choice. I know that was a lot. Let's unpack it real fast. Notice that Farley said that it was unjust to seduce and manipulate people who have a limited capacity for free choice because of immaturity, special dependency, or loss of power. This is really important. Be in a healthy relationship, in an ethical sexual relationship with someone, there has to be equal power dynamics where someone's capacity for choice is completely and totally free. When we lie or break our promises, we are violating limits and hindering the freedom of choice of another person. For example, Farley states that deception and betrayal are ultimately coercive. If I lie to you when it comes to communicating my intentions and desires, and you act on the basis of that lie, I have limited your options and hence coerced you. Similarly, I have made, if I make a promise to you with no intention of keeping that promise, and you make a decision based on that promise, I have deceived, coerced, and betrayed you. Now, I know that seems a bit strong, but think about it. So much heartbreak and pain comes from people not being fully honest and not being true to their commitments. The third and final norm we're going to talk about today is, is called mutuality. Mutuality. Our white patriarchal dominant culture has traditionally viewed sex as men being active penetrators and women passively receiving it. Farley describes this kind of sex as the woman as receptacle and the man as filler, the woman as ground and the man as seed. Today, many of us see that as antiquated, thank God. But this active, passive model for sex is still very much how we think today. Farley explains that in today's modern culture, we can appreciate all the ways in which the physical, even at the physical level, men's bodies receive, encircle, and embrace, and all the ways women's bodies are active, giving, and penetrating. Regardless of your sexual orientation, Farley states, the key for us has become not active activity and passivity, but active receptivity and receptive activity. Each partner active, each one receptive. Sex is not merely something you do to scratch an itch. She explains that human sexuality rather 
is fundamentally relational. And it seeks ultimately what contemporary philosophers have called a double reciprocal incarnation or a mutuality of desire and embodied union. Mutuality implies that no one is being used. Both people are giving and receiving. But a higher expression of justice and mutuality, because remember, all of these norms can be experienced on a continuum. The highest expression of justice and mutuality is the utter and complete self-disclosure between two people that happens when relationships mature and deepen into an abiding mutual trust this kind of sex is rooted in what writers of Genesis describe as being naked and not ashamed. We should all aspire to this kind of intimacy with our partners, this kind of emotional and physical nakedness without shame. The evangelical purity culture tells women that they have to save themselves until marriage. This is not a message teen boys generally get. Young girls are given promise rings by their father as they weirdly commit to their dads to wait until marriage to have sex. The message of female sexual purity is also found outside the church. We believe that sex is something that can be tarnished by past lovers, by past experiences. We believe in the toxic myth of baggage and we don't date people our age because they might have baggage. Once women lose their virginity, we are told that they lose the very gift that they were created to give to their husbands. Nothing about this is true. Your worth is not tied to your sex life. Your worth is not tied to how well you kept your promises to your dad. Parents, this might be hard to hear, but the sex life of your adult children is none of your business. The best thing you can do is model a healthy sexual ethic in the way you treat yourself and your partner. As a parent, you can offer advice or suggestions, but other than that, what they do is their own freedom of choice, a freedom that God gave to them and that you cannot take away. And so when we respect the concrete reality of our teens and adult children, we are respecting God and acting justly. Ladies, your sexuality does not belong to your husband, your wife, or your boyfriend, or your partner. It belongs to you. And it is out of your freedom of choice that you give it to someone else or that you share it with someone else. Your worthiness your value as a person does not diminish because of the amount of partners you've had or the experiences, good or bad, you may have endured. Please remember that bad experiences in sex happen in marriage too. Married couples have bad sexual experiences too. Our sex lives have ups and downs. This is a normal part of being human. The goal is to mature and to grow and to hopefully foster a relationship with someone, whether you're married or not, where you can experience the maximum amount of justice and love. When many of us think of marriage, we often think of that passage in Ephesians where Paul wrote that men ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And I quote, gave himself up for her. 
I love that passage. I'm not trying to make fun of it, but it can be really toxic. Evangelicalism takes this verse to pressure both men and women to sacrifice their lives for each other. But your relationship with your partner should not reflect the crucifixion of Christ. Think about it. Not everything should be a sacrifice. You should not have to sacrifice who you are or what you believe or what you want out of a relationship. You might have to sacrifice some of your time and where you make dinner reservations and how you wash the dishes and where some of your money goes when you're trying to buy a house. But you should not have to die to yourself in order to be in a relationship. Your marriage should not reflect the crucifixion of Christ. Your relationship with your partner ought to reflect the abundant life as reflected in the fruits of the spirit. Peace, joy, love, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. When we do no unjust harm, when we respect freedom of choice, when we engage in mutuality, the fruits of the spirit have the capacity to bloom. And that is something worth celebrating and worth pursuing. Now, I know today's talk was a lot to digest, but I think it's important to kind of cover that. I hope that I gave you a lot of food for thought and that you felt encouraged by what I shared today. Next week, we're going to finish Margaret Farley's Seven Norms and talk about the gray matters of sexuality. When is the right time to have sex? Should sex be saved until marriage? What does the Bible say about casual sex and hookups? How does that fit into Margaret Farley's Seven Norms for Just Sex? And so I want to encourage you to come back next week um, for the second part of the talk. But that's all. Are there any questions or any comments or feedback or anything that you want to share about this topic? Go ahead, Angie. This is just an anecdote. Um, I went to a Christian school from preschool through 12th grade. Um, when I started my freshman year of high school, they passed a clipboard around every homeroom and asked us to sign a contract saying we wouldn't have sex when we were married. I didn't sign it because I thought it was stupid that my high school would ask me something like that, which probably started my deconstruction. But um, yeah, just a fun anecdote of how stupid that is. <laughs> Anyone? Yeah, uh, is, Leanne, did you have your hand up? Oh, you were scratching. I'm sorry, gosh. It's like I saw that hand. Um, I have a question. Uh, could you say more about the, your perception or your understanding of the roots of purity culture? Specifically, you know, the one lately, <laughs> or the one that we grew up with, I guess is what I'm saying. So, yes, I don't see everything stemming from Joshua Harris. I mean, I'm not, I don't. I actually have a lot of compassion on him. The title of this talk is called Pleasure and Purity. It's from Elizabeth Elliot's book called Passion and Purity. Um, she influenced Joshua Harris, and she didn't get her ideas on her own. Like, this idea that women's sexuality, which is what it's really all about, women's sexuality needs to be controlled. And if you can control that, you can control men. Women's sexuality needs to be controlled as, has long roots in puritanical thinking. And so even today, when you talk about being anti-LGBT, you're still controlling women, you know? And you're controlling the patriarchal structure which is men as head and women submit. Um, and so when you're like being anti-gay men, you're, you're 
being anti women too, because you're saying that there is no other sexuality outside of this patriarchal norm. But yeah, that's where I see it. That's why when I think about LGBT rights, to me, it's all about gender. It's not really about, can you be a drag queen, you know, on, in WeHo? It's, it's really about controlling women's sexuality, even with the pending or possible overturn of Roe versus Wade this month. That's about controlling women's sexuality and really getting really punitive about it in certain states. So, yeah. Could, and could you say more about the connection you see between um, basically the evangelical resistance or refusal to be affirming of LGBTQ folks and how they look at women? Could you say more about, could you say it's all about gender? Yeah. Like, why do you, could you say more about that connection between, you know, their kind of patriarchy and the anti-LGBTQ views they have? Yeah, I think when we grow up evangelical, we are taught to like really value and borderline worship the patriarchal paradigm. We find security in masculine dominance, masculine authority, and anything that threatens that, we are taught to be threatened by that too. Um, and everything LGBT threatens that. I think what's so great about Kathy Baldock is she really unpacks how even in heterosexual relationships, that, is, that was often controlled by puritanical Victorian laws. For example, for the longest time, anything that was outside of procreative sex was considered queer. So if you're an older married couple that can't really have children, like the woman is well past childbearing years, you should not be trying to get married because you can't have children. So why would you have sex? And so to me, anything evangelicals see, anything outside of that patriarchal paradigm as threatening that paradigm. And it's really tragic because there's so much more to life than following someone else's description for who you need to be. Yeah. Anyone else? Ladies, do you have any thoughts, opinions, corrections for me? Any edits? Um, I just, one thing also that I was thinking about is, um, and, and I'm thinking back to like an experience that I had with someone who attended this church like a decade ago and um, of just that you in a marriage were like, the husband was supposed to like take control of the family and be the head yes. of the family and like spiritually as well as like, and it was like one of those things where, I mean, this girl was like, super progressive, like woman of color was like very, you know, but like still just had like this ingrained like disappointment with their spouse because he wasn't being like the head of the household spiritually. And I just, it got me thinking to like, that there was that so much ingrained, like that aspect of like, I can think of so many people that feel like their marriages are like failures because their spouse doesn't have that personality trait of like being the head of whatever they think they need to be more the head of. Um, and even these, you know, women who are like 
smart, I mean, this person had a PhD, like smart, progressive, like just still have this like ingrained, like there's something wrong with my marriage if their spouse isn't the head of whatever, or if they don't have the assertive personality to do whatever it is, X, Y, Z. And I just think that's like an aspect of this whole thing that we don't talk about a, a whole lot either of, I mean, that is all like right in line with the whole, you know, sexual ethics and the, you know, relationships and the patriarchy and that we still have, you know, these feelings. Yeah. I remember listening to a Q and a with Joshua Harris back when he was, um, an evangelical and a woman wrote, what do I do if my husband doesn't like lead devotions with the family and take charge at home? And he said, just wait for him to do so. Just don't do it. Just wait for him to do it. I know you're tempted to, to lead the devotions yourself. Just don't just wait for his leadership. And I was like, oh my God, that's so sad because that woman is probably a wonderful alpha and would probably run that household so well. And would, and, and, He's probably not and would have so much joy in, in seeing his wife. I don't know. I find that really cool. Um, Aaron and I have been married for almost 18 years now. And um, I remember that being a cause of so much conflict, even in our early marriage. And he was like a seminary student. And I was like, we need to be like praying together. We need to be like doing devotions together. And I felt like there, we had this like failure of a marriage because he wasn't doing those things. And like, and then it got to the point where he was like, well, I just feel like sometimes the praying together can be like manipulative because like, you know, like there's that whole aspect of it. And he was like worried about that aspect. And I just remember like feeling that, you know, like, oh, we need to be doing all these things. And if we, we're not, like, we're not, we don't have this, like, real marriage. Yeah, I definitely want to affirm there's nothing wrong with traditional gender roles. If you love that and that, there's nothing wrong with that. That can be a wonderful thing. The problem is, is when there's no other option. When you give your spouse no other option but to fulfill the gender expectations that you have in your head. And the best way to kind of get, break away from that and to find freedom from that is to study and affirm their concrete reality. What are their needs? What are their strengths, their vulnerabilities? Who, who do they say they are? Not who you think they are. And just affirming that and falling in love with that can do wonders for your connection, whether you're married or not. Um, but yeah, there's a lot to just talk about when it comes to, okay, now we're married, how do we, how do we recover from purity culture. Anyone else? Okay, well, I will hopefully see you all next week. Have a great rest of your day. Mm -hmm.